to be in awe of how God works through pastoral ministry and in local churches. I received a call this morning from my wife about an article in the Long Island Newsday newspaper about one of the young ladies in the church in Franklin Square. And it so perfectly illustrates what I went through last night about not bowing to the idols. But I'm not going to tell you the story now. I want to do it tonight. I toyed over this, but I really want the children to hear this as well. But again, I want to remind you that God really does take these things that you learn and in your local churches and in the presbytery and in our own assembly. You will see how the Lord will work these things out in the life of His people. Now, God has a purpose in every single thing that you hear. God doesn't waste anything. And so this ministry that you receive this week, you have to realize God is going to use in one way or another in your life and the life of your children. So tonight I'll mention that. Now two other things before we pray. Um, a lot of what was covered in the early part of Daniel deals with what is technically called the antithesis, the the the, the stark contrast between darkness and light and truth and error and so forth. And real faithful reform ministry must preserve that antithesis between darkness and light and truth and error. And two volumes that will help explain something of what that antithesis is. One is Dr. the late Dr. Rushdoony's volume, By What Standard? It's called An Analysis of the Philosophy of Cornelius Van Til, who of course was professor of apologetics at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia for many years. But this is a, a, a relatively easy to read and popular presentation, not so much of what Dr. Van Til taught, as of what the scriptures teach about the antithesis between darkness and light, and particularly thinking about young people graduating from high school, going off to college. This is an excellent introduction to, to that topic. Now, a more heavy-duty version of it, and, and certainly not for the faint of heart or mind, uh, but uh, still, if you're wanting to delve more into that, Dr., the late Dr. Bonson's Van Til's Apologetic Readings and Analysis is excellent. Um, you may have a difficult time getting through Van Til, but Dr. Bonson was one of God's gifts to the church to help us understand Van Til. So both of those volumes are up there. And then, I think these others, I'll, I'll, see, I'll, mention, I'll mention them now, because I, the second session deals with how the Lord resists the proud. And I, won't do, I don't want to do any book presentations then. I want to get right into the material. So let me mention these others now. I was very glad to see that Kerry got the recently reprinted a commentary on the Westminster Larger Catechism. We do have a larger catechism. It doesn't begin with uh, what is man's chief end. It's got another one, and it's much, much longer. Uh, but Johannes Voss, uh, who had taught at Geneva College for many years, uh, did an, a very excellent, popular commentary on the larger catechism. So there's only one copy of this left, uh, but I encourage you to get this. Dr. Voss had a gift for making very difficult things simple without making them trite. And this is a welcome addition uh, to the corpus of material on the catechism. The volume by uh, J.C. Ryle, Holiness, Its Nature, Hindrances, Difficulties, and Roots. Uh, Dr. Ryle was in the evangelical tradition of the Anglican Church of the 19th century, and God has used this book throughout generations uh, to go through the biblical basics of what holiness is, which is very largely what we're covering in the material today. And last but not least is what I think is the best volume that the Banner of Truth has ever published. 
Um, it's called The Valley of Vision, A Collection of Puritan Prayers and Devotions. This volume is magnificent. Uh, years ago, one of our men was at a, a Ligonier Study Center conference, and he roomed with a pastor who was going through a deep period of discouragement. And the pastor saw this volume and said, Do you mind if I use this tomorrow with my devotions? The fellow said, Sure. And uh, the next morning, a, a man, a member of the church in Franklin Square, got up and saw this pastor hunched over his desk with his Bible, reading these prayers as well, with tears coming down his cheeks. And when this brother Charlie got up, he said, Well, what would you think of the book? And he said, This volume is gold. It is pure gold. And the reason he said that is that this volume is gold. It is pure gold. So I really, if you're going to just take one book home, please get a copy of this and use it. You will, in fact, if you don't like it, you send me a note and I'll, I'll send you your money back for it. I'm that convinced that it's that great a book and you will be as well. And one last thing, let's pray. On page 18, page 18 of your, of your syllabus, uh, you, page 18 from yesterday morning, morning session, just in case you didn't get these, I'm not following the syllabus at every point. This was done several months ago, and so just to be sure you've got it filled in so you can take it home. Um, it's under two, a little stone. This is a prophecy of Christ and His kingdom. Uh, that little stone prophecy is a prophecy of Christ and His kingdom. Christ and His kingdom. And it is victory number two. You'll see how many of the victories over the Lord's enemies are shown as we go through Daniel. Okay, that's our, that's our preface for the morning. We've got a lot to do today. Um, and I'll warn you, the second section is very, very incisive. It reminds me a little bit of what I did two years ago on mortification of sin. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we are deeply conscious this morning that we once again are in your presence, even as Nebuchadnezzar was made to face your awesome presence and sovereignty. So we do the same before your word by the Holy Spirit. And we ask our Lord Jesus once again that you will exercise the office of a king to us and in a fresh way subduing us to yourself and in restraining and conquering all of your and our enemies. And we pray, O King Jesus, that you would do that subduing work in us and in our children here at the camp as well. For the glory of your name, Amen. All right, now we're in the syllabus, and now we are on page, well, it's Wednesday, June 9th, morning session one. What page is that? I don't. 23, okay, there you go. Wednesday, June 19th, morning session number one. We're covering the first part of Daniel 4, 1 to 27. I had a dream. But, before you turn to Daniel, turn to 1 Timothy 2 and verses 1 through 4. One of the areas of weakness that I fear that we have in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is that particularly in recent years there are certain groups within the church that I humbly believe want to say so little to the state that we end up becoming disobedient to the Word of God. Now it is true that we must be very careful about how the church addresses the state and there's a big difference between the church corporate addressing the state and individuals dealing with the state. 
But the Bible is very clear that the state ought to be in the crosshairs of our concern. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4. Therefore I exhort first of all, in the first place, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Remember when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, had their necks as it were on the line, they had a prayer meeting. Where should prayer be directed, first of all? For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now, I would suggest to you that kings and all who are in authority are not going to be very helpful in assisting God's people in leading quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence if they have no concept of what godliness and reverence is. And it is the church that is to make known what godliness and reverence is. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. That does not mean all people, meaning every last man, woman, boy, or girl, but people in all categories of society, first of all in the state. God desires even that kings and those who are in authority might be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. There are two wrong responses to government. Number one is to put too much emphasis on it. When Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980, there were Christians who really were convinced that some kind of millennial glory was going to come in under his administration. That's idolatry. And Christians learned after a few years, that that was a misguided ideal. The second wrong emphasis is that we put too little emphasis on government. 1 Timothy 2, of course, speaks of addressing government. In Romans 13, the magistrate is to be a minister of good. How do you define good? By the Word of God. Look at Isaiah 49 and verse 7. One of the prophecies of the glories that would come in the New Covenant period, a magnificent prophecy of the Christ who would come, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, Yahweh, of course, would become flesh and dwell among us as Jesus, the Redeemer, to Him whom man despises, to Him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, Christ in his humiliation, despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, a man crucified under Pontius Pilate. But before the, after the cross is the crown. Kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. And brothers and sisters, we ought to have a deep concern that the rulers of the earth serve King Jesus in faith. That is a strong dynamic of Holy Scripture. And I introduce this section from Daniel chapter 4 with these words because in Daniel 4, you have an Old Testament picture of what that could involve. Now, turn to Daniel, the fourth chapter.
Daniel chapter 4 gives a portion of the events that most believe occurred in the last decade of Nebuchadnezzar's life. These are certainly bizarre events, but even what few secular historical records we have indicate that there were changes in the lives of this ruler. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar really lived. When you're teaching your children, what I do, as I'll say when I preach or when I teach, if I could go back in a time machine to the middle of the 6th century before the birth of Christ, I would be in a real place where there's a real Babylon and a real king named Nebuchadnezzar and a real Daniel. Anything to make children appreciate the fact that these are real people. And so there are accounts of this real Nebuchadnezzar that seem to indicate, though they are sketchy accounts, that there was a change at the end of this man's life. And also, that there was even a period in which he was absent from government rule. Again, that doesn't confirm what's in the Scriptures, but it's rather interesting that at least it does align with what we read in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4 is full of lessons regarding the Christian's response to the governing powers. Verses 1 through 3 are really something that Nebuchadnezzar issued after the remaining events given in Daniel chapter 4. Following the time, following the fulfillment of the unusual circumstances recorded in chapter 4, toward the end of his 43rd year of reign, a reign that was an outstanding accomplishment, full of outstanding accomplishments. Remember, one of the great wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, was there built under the time of Nebuchadnezzar. This was then approximately 565 years before the birth of Christ. And Nebuchadnezzar the king sends an edict, a statement, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. In other words, to everyone within his empire. Empires then were regarded as the whole known world. Peace be multiplied to you. Isn't that an interesting expression? This is a man who loved to tear people from limb to limb, who wanted to make homes ash heaps and got his jollies out of burning people in big furnaces. And he says... In his own language, Shalom, multiplied blessings be to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. He shows his authority. He is the king. There is a simplicity and even a humility here. It is the fruit of a true reflection on his position. He has been humbled with a dream and he didn't listen. God is going to humble him again and he will listen. And that is reflected in these statements. This was to be read to all the known world. It was, if you will, a special address to all of the nations. He speaks of signs and wonders that the Most High has worked for me. Intrusions of the power of God in history that go beyond the natural, like delivering young men from a furnace, which of course was a miracle. But signs and wonders in the Scriptures also are designed to show the kingdom of God. Signs and wonders are shown to Pharaoh to show that Jehovah rules. Signs and wonders are given in the New Testament to authenticate the words of Christ the King. Signs and wonders are going to be shown here to show Nebuchadnezzar in a book that was written in Aramaic at that point, addressed to the secular world, 
who the King of kings really is. And the result in verse 3 is his own conviction, that is Nebuchadnezzar's conviction, that there is a kingdom of greater duration than my own and a God greater in magnitude than I am. Many believe that this was the fruit of a genuine confession of faith that Nebuchadnezzar had in Jehovah as his Lord. Now, the Bible doesn't give us insight into his heart, but this is markedly unlike the other confession that Nebuchadnezzar made. Now, his fuller confession is going to come, and it is full of lessons for today. But Nebuchadnezzar has been humbled before God. St. Augustine said the three greatest marks of true Christian faith are humility, humility, and humility. And brothers and sisters, whether it be in a minister, an elder, a deacon, a man, woman, boy or girl, whether it be in you or me, pride is the sin that is most directly contrary to what Christianity is all about. And so at this climax of God's dealings with Nebuchadnezzar, this is the last main dealing with Nebuchadnezzar that we will see, you're going to see how God makes this man humble. Let's look at the king's dream in verses 4 through 18. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. Battles were done for him. At that point in Nebuchadnezzar's empire, there really wasn't anything left to conquer. He had done everything he could, somewhat like Alexander the Great, who wept because there were no other places for him to conquer. He had invaded Egypt. He had conquered Israel. All of the previous empires were his. There was a cessation from all, war from all warfare. And he was flourishing in his palace. Literally, he was growing green in his palace. He had made it. He was living the life of Riley. He didn't have a care in the world. He didn't need to go out to battle. And my dear brothers and sisters, that's when things really are bad news. I saw a dream during that time. God intervenes. And that dream made me afraid. And the thoughts of my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. He was agitated. His whole body trembled. He was awakened by a severe nightmare, was shaking all over, and was trembling like a leaf. There is an ease in Zion among the Lord's people and in the world. And there sure is an awful lot of it in our land, even post-September 11th. People at ease in Zion, people at ease in the world, living luxurious lives of prosperity in which they have made it. And your tendency and mine is to say it is hopeless. An unconverted spouse who has no interest in the things of God, he's got a good job, he's made it in the world, he is happy, why does he need God? And you say, how can that person ever be saved? Similar blessings come to your children and they seem to forget all the covenant nurture that was given to them or national officials who don't even have time for God. And you and I will say, what hope is there? Nebuchadnezzar had bodyguards to protect his body from those who wanted to kill him. He was the most well-protected man in the known world of that day. 
But God put a worm in his conscience because the Lord God is able to work where human beings cannot go. And don't you ever forget that God is able to work in the consciences of those most at ease in Zion, Nebuchadnezzar being a model of it. Nebuchadnezzar is upset in his conscience again, and so he's going to give the wizards another try. I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men. Now this is just a description. The Chaldeans, the great uh, academic leaders of that day, the people of great wisdom and prowess, those wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in. And here you see that Nebuchadnezzar has mellowed a little bit. I told them the dream. He wasn't as hard as he was before, in which he said, you've got to tell me the dream and the interpretation. This time he's mellowed out a bit, and he says, I want to tell you the dream, but you've got to tell me what it means. But they did not make known to me its interpretation. The king tells the magician their dream. They're still unable to interpret. Once again, you see, and no more needs to be said, the futility of his spiritual leaders. Of course, the big question is, why wasn't Daniel called in right away? You know, there's an interesting dynamic that's at work. I see it as a pastor. Very interesting how hardened people want to hear the truth but they don't want to hear the truth. Isn't that interesting? You have that with Herod. You have that with Agrippa. You have that with Saul the king in the Old Testament and in many other places. You have it with Ahab. Isn't there another prophet that you can call in to speak to you? All these other guys are phony balonies telling you you're going to win the war. And Ahab knew he was going to lose. And they said that in this amazing dynamic, all the prophets come in, tell Ahab that he's going to win. Ahab knows he's going to lose. All the other people know these guys are phony balonies. And so they say, don't you have somebody else you could bring in? And he says, yes, there's this guy, Micaiah. He'll tell me the truth, but I don't want to call him in because he never prophesies anything but bad news concerning me. And that's exactly the way sinful people function. They know in their heart of hearts something is true, but they don't want to hear it. And I think that dynamic is at work here. He didn't want to hear the truth. Because this dream, incidentally, is a dream that was so easy to interpret, at least in the main part. Probably Nebuchadnezzar in his heart of hearts even knew what it meant. But the other reason is that this was ordered by God's sovereignty. Everything is. But remember, part of the burden of the book of Daniel is to show over and over again, even by more than one witness, that all the wizards and the gurus and the soothsayers and diviners and the horoscope makers and the biorhythm establishers of this life don't have insight into the things of God. And so God ordained that he should not call in Daniel at that point. Isaiah had already prophesied, let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you. They shall not be coals to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. And that's the indictment of modern soothsayers. Can Nostradamus save you? Can Gene Dixon guarantee where you'll be after death? Can the palm reader tell you surely of ultimate truths? 
They're not even a coal to warm yourself by. They are not even a little spark of fire that you can warm yourself with. And so that's the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar has learned. Now he does call in Daniel. And there's an amazing statement by him. At last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. On the one hand, he's wanting to show his authority over Daniel. He still uses his name. At last Daniel came before me, but he's one of my servants, named after my God. But in him is the spirit of the Holy God, there is something different about this man. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because that was the best way he could understand what Daniel did. Because I know that the Spirit of the Holy God, the God who is above all gods, is in you, I have seen it. I've seen it demonstrated. I've seen it in your piety. I know it in your character. And this is the next statement that's so pregnant with significance. And no secret troubles you. Twice Nebuchadnezzar has been troubled. He has been shaken to his core by dreams. This man who did not flinch before the armies of all the known world is made a quivering mass of jello before God. But here is one who does not get troubled by secrets. Daniel, you are what I should have been as king. Is that not the testimony of Christians in the world? Just what happened as we began our time today. You realize the significance of what was said. Pastor Pontier says, where my wife works, I mean, the idea that somebody would be married for 25 years is an anomaly. And here you've got a couple of hundred people at a camp. And how many have been married 20 years, 25 years, 30, 35, 50, 60 years? You don't think a world doesn't look at that and say that's really what we ought to be? Now, C.S. Lewis was kind of screwy with his theology at points. But I'm going to tell you, when C.S. Lewis was good, he was really good. And he has a statement. My wife and I have loved to read it and quote it and laugh over it and the significance of it. He talked about people who flitted around with affairs in his day. And that was over 50 years ago. And he said, these people that, in his, my own language, these people that are always going after different spouses all the time and playing around are like little children that jump from one little mud puddle to another. But those who have been married for many years and seek to build their marriage on the foundation of Christian faith are like people who know the joys of swimming in the deepest waters. Now you see, that's a picture and the world sees that. Nebuchadnezzar saw in Daniel's witness, even as he heard in Daniel's word, what God's people are meant to be. No secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. 
He calls in Daniel. He acknowledges Daniel's authority. Daniel possessed the spirit of the true God. God compelled that unbeliever to seek Him, that sovereign grace. God compelled that... And don't think Daniel, who was a man of prayer, had not prayed for kings. If in the New Testament we are called to pray for kings and all those in authority, and that builds on an Old Testament precept to do the same, obviously Daniel, as a man of prayer, would have prayed for this man. Sovereign grace pursued Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, Daniel, nobody else can help me. Please, give me the interpretation of the dream. Now here's the dream. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. Trees were a common ancient symbol of royal power. That's in your notebook. Common ancient symbol of royal power. Ezekiel 31 verses 3 and following. The oaks of Bashan. Strong, firm, representing Royal power. Isaiah 2 and verse 12 and following. The cedars of Lebanon standing strong like towers. Unshakable. The tree grew and became strong and its height reached to the heavens. The tree grew and became strong its height reached to the heavens. It could be seen to the ends of all of the earth. It was in the very midst of the earth. This was the main royal power of that day. Who else could it be? But this one who was living in the lap of luxury and had no other place to conquer. Its leaves were lovely. Leaves for protection and for shade. Its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Shade and food representing the nature of government, giving protection and provision to people. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of that. This is an indictment. It's a symbolic picture of, obviously, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. I saw in the visions of my head, verse 13, while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one. A watcher is another term for an angel or a messenger. Not just someone who looked, but someone who looked and who acted. We have people now who watch at airports. They don't just look around. That would eviscerate what they're called to do. When there is something to do, these watchers act. These watchers see what is going on. They have oversight of an area and they act the role of the angels. Angels are God's cabinet officials. In the book of Revelation, you read of the angels who act and who blow trumpets and declare judgments to come. Well, the watcher is the same thing here. Psalm 103 and verse 20, the angels excel in strength, hearkening to the voice of God's Word. 2 Samuel 24, 16. Incidentally, Here's another area. You know, Christians are all gaga. Isn't it great how spiritual our culture is becoming? There's good spiritual programming on TV. I can watch Touched by an Angel and get my religious devotions for the week. And you have these cute, beer-bellied, cherubic creatures that are the angels that people put in front of their houses to protect them. Of course, we're nothing at all like the ancient superstitious pagans, right? You want to be touched by an angel? Second Samuel 24, 16. 
the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem. This was a watcher. It was an angel that he saw. A holy one. Not the holy one, but one sent from him coming down from heaven. Heaven is a synonym for God himself here. When people look up toward heaven, they are looking to God. Came from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, the tree representing Nebuchadnezzar. Cut off its branches, which represented his personal reign. Strip off its leaves, his power by which he protected that empire. Scatter its fruit, his power by which he presided over the productivity of those people. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. He will not have authority over those things under him. Nevertheless, leave the stump. What's the stump? It's the stump not of the Babylonian Empire. It is the stump of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. There's still going to be a remnant of his individual power. Leave the stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze. He will still be there. He will not be able to exercise authority. Instead, there will be but stump and roots of his power, but it will be such that he's going to need to be bound like an animal was. For you bound wild animals with iron and bronze, and he will be bound in the tender grass of the field Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times seven pass over him. His reign will be toppled. He will no longer be able to make provision. His reign will not be completely done away with, but he will be restrained as an animal would be restrained. Here is an evidence, verse 16, that a human being is in view because it speaks of a heart of a man being changed until the heart of a beast until seven times pass over it. Now Daniel is going to use seven many times in the book. What does seven mean? Well, sometimes it means a period of years. In most cases, it simply means until the time is completed. Until this perfect time that is necessary is completed. A child says, Daddy, how long do I need to stay in my room and be disciplined? Daddy says, till I say so. That's a seven. Until the time is done. That's the idea. And so, Daddy, you can be very theological with your discipline, with your children. How long, Daddy? Seven times. And then let them guess how long it is. They could take out their dispensational volumes and interpret it literally, or they could take their reformed volumes and interpret it figuratively, but only you know the answer. There's a good way to make theology very practical. Now, if you were the king of Babylon, What would you think at this point? This is describing him. And he knows it. And Daniel tells him the truth as a good preacher. And it's all the reason, all for the reason in verse 17, this decision is by the decree of the watchers. Not that they've established it, but they are to make sure it is carried out. Later that decree is referred to God Himself. And the sentence by the word of the holy ones They are issuing, carrying out the order of the King of Kings and it is done in order or to the intent that the living, not just the one affected. Remember, this is Aramaic. 
It's written to the Babylonians, to the known world. It is that all those who read this of the known world may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever He will, and sets over it the lowest of men to the intent by a fixed decree to conclusively show that God is the one who raises up kings and brings them down. And that language, in order that the living may know, is not the language of theoretical knowledge. Oh, I know that. It's the language of the gut, of the heart. I know it because it has been branded into my breast that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He will and sets it over the lowest of men. Now that's the purpose of what's going to happen. It's what the dream is. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar is giving this dream to Daniel. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 18, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom are bankrupt. They're not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the Spirit of the Holy God is in you. Wouldn't it be glorious if we lived to see today that a President of the United States called in some Reformed theologians? Hey, see, you laughed at that. will never happen. How big is your faith? and said, we are dealing with ethical issues about life and about death. And we are so lost trying to deal with these issues that we are like a ship in the middle of the ocean with no compass and no star to gauge by. We're lost. And all of our Harvard sociologists and all of our Yale biologists and all of our Princeton ethicists, especially the one they got at Princeton right now, they're not able to give us any help at all. But the Judeo-Christian ethic has been a standard, tried and true ethic of what is right. Tell us what we ought to do. Now that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. He sees the bankruptcy of the secular system around him and gives an open invitation to Daniel to speak. And so Daniel gives the interpretation. Verses 19 to 27. Then Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar. Remember, this is an Aramaic. And you have, on the one hand, the Jewish name that represents God who is judge, but he was named by his court name that was used. What, and there's no sin in all of that. But the fact of the matter is, Daniel is the name that's used first. Was astonished for a time. He knew what this meant, and he's stunned. And his thoughts troubled him. Brothers and sisters, this pagan king was responsible for the vanquishing of Daniel's nation. This pagan king would be the equivalent of Osama bin Laden, who is an authority in a Middle Eastern nation where you as a Christian have become second in command. For all we know, this man may have been indirectly responsible for the killing of Daniel's whole family or sending them into exile, at least separating him from them. And Daniel, humanly speaking, would have had 
even more reason to have hatred and bitterness of Nebuchadnezzar than we think we have reason to hate radical extremist Muslim leaders. And Daniel is upset. This pagan king has vanquished Israel. He's kept God's people in exile. He's trying to brainwash and destroy the faithful ones. At best, he's a kind hypocrite in dealing with God's people. Here's Daniel's grand opportunity. Wait until you hear what's coming to you. How many Christians think the first thing you tell a national leader is words of divine judgment? And you do it with hatred and animosity. Jerry Falwell may have had truth in what he said the day after September 11th. But that's not the spirit in which you ought to speak. Incidentally, God doesn't judge a nation for homosexuality. Homosexuality is a judgment of God. God gives people over to do things that are not convenient, including having lusts one toward another. And it is a judgment of God not only when people commit indecent acts. Paul's very clear in Romans that it's a judgment of God when people even approve of those things. Daniel didn't come spouting out the judgments of God to Nebuchadnezzar. He was agitated in his spirit such that Nebuchadnezzar had to say, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar, Daniel answered and said, My Lord, this is respect for this pagan king. May the dream concern those who hate you far better that this be for your enemies, he says to a pagan king, than for you. And its interpretation concern your enemies. Brothers and sisters, let your thoughts about magistrates be formed by the Word of God. God, our Westminster standards, represent the Scriptures when they say, God the Supreme Lord and King over all the world has ordained civil magistrates Nebuchadnezzar, George Bush, Gray Davis, they are ordained by Him to be under Him over the people for His own glory and the public good. And my friends, you can't tell the Gray Davises and the George Bushes of our land what it is to be under Christ over the people for His own glory and the public good if you don't speak to them. It is the duty of people to honor them, to pay them tribute. Infidelity or difference in religion does not make void the magistrate's just and legal authority. The Bible says we're to confess our transgressions one to another and pray for one another that we may be healed. I'm going to confess one of my transgressions to you. It's not as difficult a transgression now since George Bush was elected, but it was a big temptation when his predecessor was in office. I got to the point with his predecessor that when I would hear him on the radio, I would say, if I believe exactly the opposite of what he says, then I will know what's right. But you know what? That's true. 
As time went on, I would believe exactly the opposite of what President Bush's predecessor said, and it was right. And I had the hardest time respecting that disreputable, immoral, vile man. But God put him there. He's a reflection of our wicked, immoral, duplicitous culture. The way of God saying, you get exactly what you are. But he was still our president. And here Daniel had to respect and gave a model of respect for that one who was a power ordained by God. Here's his response. He gives a response. He is astonished. His thoughts troubled him. There's sympathy. This is very hard news to tell a friend. He says again in verse 19, My Lord, here's the servant of the Lord of Lords, showing respect for heathen magistrates. Isn't that beautiful? My Lord, better this should have the Lord's anointed. I mean, I thought only the Roman Catholic Church had a Pope. And doesn't the Bible speak of an apostle named Peter who had to be withstood to his face by an apostle Paul because he was to be charged? He was wrong? So there's an extreme. But you are still to respect those who are in authority. Well, that's one of the reasons why I don't permit little children to call me Bill. Oh, you may. We're peers. But showing respect for authority is part of the fifth commandment. Honoring your father and your mother. Not honoring Tom and Joe and Dick and Sally and Mary. Father and mother are terms of office in the Bible. There's to be a respect for authority. And Daniel showed it here. Now he is honest and he speaks. He speaks the truth in love. It's a model of how to speak to those in authority. What was that tree? Now, verse 20, the tree that you saw which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O King. Thou art the man. That's the pattern of dealing with kings. Nathan, to David, let me tell you a story, David, about a man who stole the one little sheep that a person had, even though he had a whole bunch of sheep. Daniel says, go get that guy and give him what for? Nathan, you are the man, David. Herod, has that odd relationship with John the baptizer in that he's fascinated by what this guy says but doesn't like it at the same time. And Herod did not receive from John the baptizer a statement like this. Herod, we are in a particular redemptive historical situation in which there has been an intrusion into our period or there is going to be that, the reign of a king who shall one day have a consummated kingdom showing its glory in all of the earth. And we should live in our lives here and appropriate all of those resources that He gives to us. And that is my message to you, Herod. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. 
That's the way kings are to be addressed. Lovingly, but firmly. You are the man, O king. You who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reached to the heavens, and your dominion to the earth. He respects him, he honors him, and acknowledges that. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree, not of the watchers, you misunderstood it in your dream, but of the Most High, which is come upon here again. It is respectful, my lord the king, they shall drive you from men. Your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field and they will make you eat grass like oxen. You will be wet with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. You are to be driven from society to live as an animal until you acknowledge the true God and His might. But you were, but the power that will be given over to you will be tempered by mercy. Your kingdom will be restored until you acknowledge that you're not the ultimate ruler. My friends, at the last day, whatever else judgment is, it is going to be every man, woman, boy, and girl acknowledging either in praise at the threshold of everlasting life or with gnashing of teeth at the threshold of everlasting death, that they are not the center of the universe. Adam and Eve's sin was to make them and their will and their desires the center of the universe. And Nebuchadnezzar was going to realize he was not the center of the universe. Therefore, O King, verse 27, let my advice be acceptable to you. This is another way of saying, I want to put this in such a way that it's as easy for you to accept as possible. Break off your sins by being righteous. Kings are to reign in righteousness. You have not been righteous. Look at all of the unrighteousness you've done, even what's been recorded in this book. Break it off. That's what repentance is. It is not saying... First of all, appropriate your resources in Christ and then just rest in Him. It says, this is sin. You divorce it. The Christian faith is a divorce from the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. And in the name of Christ, as you marry Him, you say, I take you to be my lawfully wedded husband to follow you and love you and cherish you all of my days. And sin and the world and the flesh, I divorce you. It's a call to repentance. If there is no call to repentance in our Orthodox Presbyterian churches, close the doors. You want to preach the kingdom? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how important application is in ministry. 
It's how important application is when someone comes to your study or comes to you individually. You don't have to sit there and figure out how I draw up charges when they come to you as their own accuser and confess their infidelity. You say to them, without necessity of a church court, God says in His Word, it's already decided that is sin. You break it off or you imperil your own soul. What about faith? It's always repentance unto life. Repentance from sin. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. One ought to always include the other. Break off from your sins and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, which you've not done. And perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity or of your tranquility. It's not that your tranquility was wrong. Maybe you'll get it back, but you're going to abuse it, O King. He calls into very specific repentance as ought to be done with all in authority and with anyone else. You grieve that evangelical leaders who have been brought to the White House have not called leaders to repentance? Well, my friends, if there's no calls to repentance in the evangelical churches, don't you expect there's going to be any calls to repentance in the White House? The model of dealing with kings before the King of Kings is a gracious, kind, firm, you must repent. Just as John the baptizer said, you've collected too much, don't you collect more than what's due. You were in the military, you have lied, don't you lie anymore. And don't you oppress people. Is that moralism? No, but it's biblical morality. It's biblical obedience. And in faith it's meant to be done. And so Daniel calls the king to repentance. Two lines of application very quickly, and then we're done. Number one, all governments are formed and destroyed by the hand of God. All governments are formed and destroyed by the hands of God. Even wicked governments that are raised up are raised up for God's purposes. As Assyria, the rod of my anger. Remember, the powers that exist are ordained of God. They should be respected. They should be submitted to unless you are asked to disobey Christ. That's last night's message. You must bow down to the idol. You don't bow down. But unless you're asked to disobey Christ, you submit. Speed limit laws, tax laws, seat belt laws, you submit. But it's all with a confidence that God will bring down the wicked in His time. And I say again, don't you let the newspaper govern your theology. Too many of you get your view of eschatology from the newspaper more than the Bible. You read so much and you see so much about the wickedness in the world, you're really convinced that the wickedness of the world is far greater than Christ. Get back in your Bibles and get a reality check. Daniel will do it. Second lesson. The necessity of calling even, even, even governments to repentance. That's why Joseph to Pharaoh, Moses to Pharaoh, Jonah to the Ninevites and their leaders... Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, Paul in Caesar's palace. Why? God is jealous for His glory to be honored in the state as well as in the church. And so Paul the Felix, he reasoned with him regarding righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. And it's why Christ said to Pilate, you would have no power unless it's given to you from heaven. And one of the things we need to pray for is that God raise up men who can do it lovingly, 
and boldly but faithfully. You could not even breathe if it were not for God. One of my favorite stories, and then with this we'll close, is of Andrew Melville, who was a great Puritan leader. It was King James... I had to write it down because I forget all the King Jameses and which ones they were. This was King James the Sixth, who was not really much of a God-fearing man. But Andrew Melville was called to preach to the king at a certain assembly, as they were during that time. And King James the Sixth had the temerity to be talking to the person next to him during the sermon. See, the more things change, the more they remain the same. And remember that when you're preaching in these places, the king is right in the center of the balcony at the front. He's got the box seat to hear the preacher. Where everybody could see him coming and sit down. The king was speaking to his wife or whatever the person was next to him. And Melville stopped in his preaching. I would have loved to have been there to hear this. And he looked at the king and he said, When the lion of the field roars, all of the animals keep silence. When the lion of the tribe of Judah speaks through his minister, the kings of the earth are to keep silence before him. That's a high view of the ministerial office. The Lord taught that to Nebuchadnezzar. The king of kings is going to act to Nebuchadnezzar. And he will keep silent. You've got to get a break first so we can find out what happens. Let's stand and pray. Father in heaven, impress these lessons upon us and we pray that you will give to some of our young people, if not to some of us, the opportunity to speak to those in high office. Not because they are any better than we are in terms of nature, but because of their office men and women and boys and girls who will speak to them lovingly, firmly, respectfully, submissively, truthfully and lovingly what Christ the King says to them. King of kings, we acknowledge you. Cause our nation's leaders and all in authority to kiss you as the Son, lest you be angry and they perish in the way when your wrath is kindled but a little. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. See you back here.